Today's scripture comes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you please join me in prayer? Let's pray together. And Father, now as we have heard your word being publicly read, and as we now come before you, humbly sitting at your feet, would you help us to be focused upon your word? Father, we have prayed for all of our burdens, all of our anxieties, all of our fears to be lifted for just this moment so that we could be fully attentive and fully present to your word. God, whatever distracting thoughts, whatever anxious feelings, whatever frustrations that we may be feeling at this moment, would you, by your spirit, enable us to be able to focus on your word today. Lord, we thank you that you guide us daily, moment by moment, through the guiding principles of your word. We thank you that we are not left to ourselves having to figure things out, limited by ourselves, limited by our experiences, limited to our exposure of this world. We thank you that we are directly connected to the one who was, who is, and who will forever be. And so, Father, help us to be assured that with you, we are fully present. With you, we are fully known. We ask now that you would bless this message in spite of the messenger who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, when you meet someone for the first time, nine times out of ten, one of the questions, or perhaps the first question they're probably going to ask you is probably this question. What do you do for a living? What's your job? What do you do as work? Nine times out of ten, or maybe here in New York City, ten times out of ten, whenever you meet someone for the first time, chances are that they're going to ask you that question. Hey, what do you do for a living? Isn't that interesting? Out of all the questions that you can ask a complete stranger, the one question that seems to come up the most, the one question that most people assume will break the ice and establish an immediate connection is the topic of work. The topic of work. Now, what that tells us as a society is that we perceive work as one of the most important things that we could ever do as a human being, which begs the question, why? Why are we so fixated on work? Why is work so important? Why do we worry about work? Why do we talk about work? Why do we always think about work? Why do we always govern everything and everyone around our work? Why is work considered so important for us? Well, in order to answer those questions, you really have to come down to the more basic question that is hidden behind those questions, which is, why do we work at all? And that's the question that I would like to ask you today. Now, some of you might think that that question is a little bit irrelevant or doesn't apply to you anymore because for you, you already answered that, work, that question for yourself already. That is the answer that you are depending on as you strive to work hard right now. Or as a student in college, that is the answer that is compelling you to study as hard as you do so that you can work one day in the occupation that you hope you will. Some of the answers that some of you already have in your mind may go something like this. I work because I love my job. Or I work because I need to provide for my family. Or I work because it makes me feel like a significant person. Or I work so I can live a certain lifestyle. Or I work because I enjoy the benefits that are attached to my work. There are numerous answers to the question of why we work. 
But today I want to ask you to consider what the Bible says is the answer to that question of why we work. We're continuing our sermon series entitled METS, which stands for Members Equipped to Serve. And the point of this series is to look at the various ministries that God calls every single Christian to serve as his ministers. And today, we're taking a look at the fourth category of ministry that God calls us to serve as his ministers, which is ministering to the world through our occupation. Ministering to the world as God's ministers through our work. And as we kick off this study on work, which we're going to linger on for a couple of weeks so we can get a full panoramic picture of what the Bible says about work, is we're going to look at one of the most familiar passages in the Bible known as Genesis 1:28. And as we're going to as we do, excuse me, we're going to see three reasons that the Bible gives us as to why we should work. And those reasons are the following. First, we're created to work. The first reason why we should work according to the Bible is because we're created to work. Second reason, work is part of our vocation. Work is part of our vocation. And then finally third, work is a way to which we love our neighbor. We're created to work. Work is part of our vocation. And work is the means to which we love our neighbor. Okay, let's jump right in. First, we're created to work. In Genesis 1.28, it says this. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the skies and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Now, for those of you who grew up going to church, going to Sunday school, these words no doubt will be very familiar to it because these are the first words ever recorded in the Bible to which God spoke to mankind. God spoke these words first to our ancient ancestors, our first parents, Adam and Eve, as they're walking in the Garden of Eden. But what makes these words so important is not by the fact that these are the first words ever recorded of God speaking to man, but the content of what these words mean. These words that God has spoken to man are so important, so distinguished, so unique, that theologians refer to it with a very interesting title. It's known as the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate. Now, what in the world is the cultural mandate? Well, let me read to you a quote from one theologian named Greg Johnson because I think he gives a good definition of what the cultural mandate is. Listen to what he says. At the heart of the cultural mandate is a call to establish human society upon the earth. The Lord designed us to fill the earth and subdue it. We were created to rule creation, to make our mark upon land. We were created to create, designed to design, In other words, we were created to make chairs, construct houses, plant orchards, dam rivers, harness electricity, extract pigments and fibers, and paint Mona Lisas, turn the silicon on the beach to microchips, turn roots into potato chips. So the cultural mandate is basically the mandate or the command God has given us to where he calls us to live a productive life, to live a life that produces, or simply to live a life that works. According to Genesis 1.28, God created you and I so that we would work. Now, when you first hear that, that could possibly sound offensive to you because it almost sounds as if that the only reason why you were created by God is so that you could be his labor, so that you could just be his slaves, so that you could just provide menial labor for him, so that he could just live a life of ease. In fact, if you read other ancient accounts of creation stories from other religions like the Babylonian religion... That's exactly why the gods in those religions create mankind. Listen to this creation story called Enuma Elish. This is the mindset of the creator god of the Babylonian religion. This is what he said motivated him to create man. He said this, quote, I will establish a savage. Man shall be his name. Truly, savage man I will create. And then he says this, he will be charged with the service of the gods. Why? That they might be at ease. 
According to other ancient religions, the reason why the gods of other pagan religions create mankind is so that mankind will provide menial labor for the gods so that the gods could just relax, so the gods could just have it easy, so that the gods could just live their life in such a way to where all the hard work, all the hard labor goes to man, to where they suffer the grueling pain of having to work for the gods. But that cannot be the reason to what inspired God to create us. Because if you look at the verse right before the one that we just read, Genesis 1.27, we read this. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The fact that the cultural mandate comes right after the Bible tells us that we're made in the image of God, which is simply another way of saying we're created to be like God, that tells us something very profound. What does it tell us? It tells us that the reason why we were created to work is because God himself is a worker. Let me say that again. The reason why we were created to work is because God himself is a worker. Think about it. If God created us to be like him, to bear his image, right, and he creates us to be workers, does that not logically conclude that therefore part of what it means to be like God is to work like God? Indeed, that is exactly what it means. God called us to work. He creates us to work because God himself is a worker as well. Listen to how one pastor by the name of Tom Nelson puts it. He says this, quote, Scripture tells us that the most bedrock answer to the question of why we work is that we were created with work in mind. Being made in God's image, we have been designed to work, to be fellow workers with God. To be an image bearer is to be a worker. In our work, we are to show off God's excellence, creativity, and glory to the world. We work because we bear the image of the one who works. We are to work because that is who God is. He is a worker. Just like we are to be holy because that is also who God is. He is a holy God. Now, do you realize what that means? It means that if you are not working or if you are not striving to work, you are dishonoring God in principle that is no different to when you choose not to strive to be holy. Because in both instances, you refuse to be what you were created to be. You are not choosing to be like God. Or if I could put it more positively... God is pleased with you when you strive to work in the same manner as he's pleased with you when you strive to be holy. God created us to be like him. And when we act and think and behave in a way that imitates who he is, he is pleased. Whether it's living like him in his holiness or whether it's living like him in terms of living a life of productivity and of work. And this is something that I really believe many of you need to grasp, especially for those of you who grew up going to church. Because for many of you who grew up going to church, you were kind of tacitly taught this idea that work is simply not that important. In the grand scheme of things, in the grand priorities of God's kingdom, you were taught that evangelism, studying the Bible, going on missions, that's a greater priority than doing things like being a businessman or being a plumber, or being an artist, or even being a doctor. We assume in the church today that normal work, work outside of the church, is simply not that important, unless that work is, of course, Christian work. If you're a pastor, if you're a missionary. I remember when I was in college, and when I felt the call of God to be a pastor, I remember telling one of my friends, you know what? I think God is calling me to be a full-time pastor. I think God is calling me to be a professional minister. And I clearly remember to this day what my friend said to me. He said to me, wow, John, that's awesome. It must be great knowing that you're doing a work 
that is going to please God. That's what he said to me. Now consider, analyze what my friend is saying in that statement. The assumption he is assuming. What is he assuming? He's assuming that my line of work is more significant, more precious, more important to God than, say, maybe the work that he plans to do. Right? Don't we kind of make that assumption? Oh, yeah, you know, you're the pastor, so you must have, you know, unique pleasure upon you as God's favorite servant. But in our passage, we see clearly that cannot be true because as we just studied in Genesis 1.28, our text tells us that all work, whether it's Christian work, whether it's secular work, is all equally important and equally pleasing to God. Now, of course, when I say all work is pleasing to God, there are exceptions, right? I don't literally mean all work because there's some work out there that is not pleasing to God, right? Being a pornographer, being a mercenary, being a drug dealer. Obviously, if you make your living doing those things, that is not pleasing God, but I'm not referring to that. I'm referring to the kind of work that is not so obviously Christian, but yet it's good, honest work that provides goods and services that bring common good into the world. That kind of work is pleasing to God. Listen again, Pastor Tom Nelson. He writes this, many followers of Jesus live their entire lives in the workplace under the soul-suffocating distortion that their work is not as important to God or not honoring to God as the work of a pastor or missionary. This distortion is known as work dualism. Work dualism often prompts well-meaning and sincere people to leave the work to which they are uniquely called to pursue a, quote, higher calling. When in reality, there is no more sacred space than the workplace where God has called you to serve him as you serve the common good. All work, including secular work, non-church work, non-Christian work is pleasing to God. It is important to God. That should be one of the primary reasons to why you are motivated to do the work that you do because you know that the work that you do is something that God calls you to do and he calls you to do it with the same level of excellence, the same level of devotion, the same level of desire to please him as a pastor would as he does his work. This is why Paul says what he does in Colossians 3. He says this, work willingly at whatever you do. As though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. See what Paul says? Whatever you do for a living, work at that whatever kind of job as if you are working for the Lord. As if you are a minister, if a pastor, a missionary. Work with the same level of devotion and due diligence in the work that you are currently doing. Now... With all that said, we do need to be careful with what I'm saying here, my first point, because it is possible to take what I just said to you and take it to a wrong extreme or take it to the wrong conclusion, right? Because even though it is true that God created us to work, that isn't the only thing he created us to do. And to explain what I mean by that, let me go to my next point. Work is part of our vocation. The Bible gives us a second reason as to why we should work a certain way, and that is work is part of our vocation. Work is part of our vocation. Now, I didn't just misspeak there as if what I really meant to say is that work is our vocation. No, I really meant to say work is part of our vocation. It is part of the vocation that God calls us to do. There's a big misconception going on in the church today where this idea that job and vocation mean the same thing. That when you refer to your vocation, you're basically referring to what you do for a living, your occupation. Right? That vocation and job are identical synonymous ideas. That is not how the Bible understands the concept of vocation. You see, the word vocation comes from the Latin word 
literally means calling. And according to the Bible, there are five callings that God calls every single one of us to answer. Five kinds of vocations that he calls every Christian to answer. And so the question is, what are these five callings that God gives each and every one of us? Well, the first calling, and really the primary calling, is our call to God. In his book, The Call, Christian philosopher Oz Guinness writes this, Our primary calling as followers of Christ is by him, to him, and for him. First and foremost, we are called to someone, God. Not to something such as motherhood, politics, or teaching, or to somewhere such as the inner city or outer Mongolia. In other words, the most important vocation or calling that we are to answer is our call to be loved by God through Jesus so that in response we are enabled to have love for God and a desire to live for God. Let me say that again. The most important vocation or calling that we are to answer is our call to be loved by God through Jesus which in turn enables us to have a love for God and a desire to live for God. That's our first primary calling. And here's the thing. When you have properly answered this call, when you have properly responded to this primary calling, then and only then will you be able to respond to what Guinness refers to as our secondary callings. Our secondary callings. What is that? What are the secondary callings that God calls us to do? Let me read you a quote from the executive director of the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics, a man by the name of Hugh Wetchell. This is from his book, How Shall We Work? He writes this, Our obedience to our primary calling to Christ can be seen working itself out in these four secondary callings, which are the call to the human family, the call to the church, the call to community, and the call to work. According to Wetchell, there are four secondary callings that God calls every Christian to answer. There's our calling to our personal family, There's our calling to our church family. There's our calling to the community, which in this case is referring to the poor and the forgotten. And there's the calling to our work. Does that sound familiar? Mets, right? The five ministries God calls every Christian to serve in. If you read the book of Ephesians, starting from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 6, you see Paul identifying these four secondary callings in his letter. Chapter 4 talks about our ministry to the church. Chapters 5 and 6, which we studied in this series, talks about our ministry to the family in the context of marriage and parenting. Chapter 6 goes on to tell us about our ministry in the workplace and our ministry to the poor. Why is this so important for us to understand that work is part of our vocation, not all of it? Why is it important for us to understand that as we do our work in this world, that there are other secondary callings that we are called to do? Because... There is a chronic problem with many people today, including many Christians today in America. And that problem is the calling that we tend to focus on, the calling that we tend to fixate on, is just our calling to work. To where we take a secondary calling, a partial secondary calling, and we elevate it as the primary and only calling to where we make work to be our only and first priority to where we end up neglecting the other secondary callings to our family, to our church, to the poor, and sacrilegiously to God. We take a primary calling and we demote it to a secondary calling or we don't even hear it at all. The point I'm trying to make here is that our vocation is so much more than the calling of a particular job or a particular occupation. And what that means practically is you have to be very wise in deciding the kind of work that you are going to do for a living. 
One of the biggest considerations that you should have when you consider your next job is this question. Is this job going to enable me to answer my other secondary callings or is it going to inhibit me from answering these other callings that God has called for me to answer? Listen, if a certain job demands 70 to 90 hours of work a week as the norm, not as the occasional busy season, but as the norm, 52 weeks out of the year, you need to seriously consider if God is really calling you to that occupation. Even though we are created to work, that is not the only thing we are created to do. Why? Because God himself is more than just a worker. Do you realize that in the Bible, God has many titles? He's not just called creator, which is his work title. He has many other titles to reflect the other things that he is and the other things that he's do. First of all, he's the heavenly father, which means he's a parent. He's a bridegroom, which means he's a spouse. He's a defender of the weak and the poor. He's also, most importantly, the king of kings and lord of lords, a title that evokes worship and glory. God is a worker, yes, which is why we're called to be like him in our working, but we're also called to be like him in terms of how we treat our spouse, how we raise our children, how we treat the poor, and first and foremost, how we worship and obey him. Your work is part of your vocation. It isn't all of it. And if you fixate on your work as the only vocation that God has called you to do, you fall into sin. And the only way you can prevent that from happening is if you consider the third and final reason the Bible gives us as to why we should work, which leads me to my final point. Work is the way to which we love our neighbor. In the Gospels, there's an incident that's recorded for us between Jesus and a religious leader, a Pharisee, where this Pharisee asks Jesus this question, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? You guys remember the answer? Jesus responded, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second, he says, is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. One of the crucial components of the greatest commandment is to love our neighbor as ourself. Here's the question. Who is our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? Well, the Bible tells us the neighbor's are all the people that we interact with, as well as all the people that we influence, which includes our own family members, the people at church, the people who are struggling that we help out in the context of mercy, as well as the people that we work with, work for. In other words, our neighbors are all the people in our various secondary callings, which also means God designed work primarily to be the means to which we love our neighbors. One of the biggest reasons why God created us to work is so that through our work, we can love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Listen to Gustav Weingreen. I love that name, Gustav Weingreen. Probably like Weingreen or something in German. But Gustav Weingreen, a theologian in Sweden, writes this. In his vocation, man does works which affect the well-being of others. For so God has made all offices. Through this work in man's offices, God's creative work goes forward. And that creative work is love, a profusion of good gifts, 
with persons as his hands or co-workers. God gives his gifts through the earthly vocations towards man's life on earth. Food through farmers, fishermen, and hunters. External peace through judges, princes, and orderly powers. Knowledge and education through teachers and parents, etc., etc. Through the preacher's vocation, God gives a forgiveness of sins. Thus, love comes from God, flowing down to human beings on earth through all vocations, through both spiritual and earthly Governments. What is Weingreen saying here? He's saying that God created us to work so that our work would be conduits of his love flowing through us, through our work, for the good of mankind. That the conduits of his love would come to the people that we work with, the people we work for, the people who work for us, and the people who receive the fruits of our labor. Here's the problem. Go back to that commandment. That Jesus answers. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus writes, Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. When you love someone as you love yourself, that assumes that you see this other person whom you're loving as your equal, right? That's what that idea, that command assumes. Love someone else as you love yourself. Treat that person the way you would treat yourself. See that person as you see yourself. Treat them as your equal, right? In other words, to love your neighbor as yourself means you do not have an attitude of superiority. You do not have an attitude of dominance to where you feel superior to the other person that you're called to love. But let me ask you, since most of you guys grew up here and most of you guys work here, Is that the kind of attitude, is that the kind of mindset that you see people working in this city? Is that the kind of mindset to where they are working because they want to love their neighbor as they love themselves? No, not in New York City. I mean, have you guys not heard that very famous song that typifies New York culture? Frank Sinatra, he sang it many years ago, Start Spreading the News. I'm leaving today. I want to be a part of it. New York, New York. I want to wake up in a city that doesn't sleep and find that I'm king of the hill, top of the heap. We live in a city and we live in a culture that does not see our work as a means to see others as our equal. No, quite the opposite. We see our work as a way to conquer our neighbor, to dominate our neighbor, to compete against our neighbor. So that we can be seen as the better person, as the superior person, as the greater person. That is what inspires so many New Yorkers to work the way they do. And this is the same mindset that's recorded for us in Scripture. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4 says this. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. We by nature do not have it in us. To see our neighbor as our equal. We instead have it in us to always see other people as our inferior. Always. Automatically. Instinctively. Which means that fuels our mindset when we work. We are so obsessed to use work as a platform to we we could establish ourselves. So that we could be found to be on top. To be king of the hill as Sinatra puts it. We use work as the means of leveraging ourselves so that we can be seen as the best, the superior one, the one and only, so that we can be seen as God. Ah, there it is, the answer as to why we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. We want to be God. The thing that traps people to work with the obsession that they do in our city 
is because they want to use their work to establish their throne, to establish their kingdom on earth, so that they could be proclaimed as the great one. Which means, the only way that you could ever work properly to where you see others as your equal and therefore use your work as a way to love your neighbors as your equal is, you have to let go of this deluded obsession of wanting to be the best of the best, of wanting to be the king of the hill, of wanting being the top of the heap. And the Bible says that the only way that you could ever get over that and let that go is through the gospel, the gospel of Jesus. What does the gospel teach us? The gospel teaches us that the true God, the only God of heaven and earth, came into our world as Jesus Christ so that he could be our suffering servant. What do I mean by that? What does it mean for Jesus to be our suffering servant? It means Jesus came to do a work that none of us could ever do for ourselves. What do I mean by that? Jesus came to do the work of salvation. That's what I mean. Jesus came to save us from our sins, principally the sin of trying to be God by dying on the cross as our substitute Savior. That's the gospel. And this work that Jesus did displays a love for us that is far greater than any love that we could ever produce within ourselves and therefore love our neighbor with. Because think about it. What kind of love did Jesus have to love us with if he wanted to be our Savior? He had to love us so much to where instead of him dominating us, to him conquering us, to him humiliating us, which is what we always try to do with our work, right, with others, he had to be willing to be humiliated. He had to be willing to be be dominated. He had to be willing to be conquered by people who are infinitely inferior to him. That's what the gospel teaches us. That's the kind of love our Savior has for us. That kind of love is something we would never do. It's a love that we would never be inspired to do. Jesus knows this. This is why he says, love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't say love your neighbor as someone greater than you because only Jesus is willing to love us that much. And what that tells us is the love that we could ever try to produce for someone else, which also is a way of saying the only love that we could try to give ourselves doesn't match to the love that God has for us. God loves us far greater than any love that we can get from anyone else, any love that we can give to ourselves. God loves us with an extravagant, merciful, gracious gospel love. And when you understand that's the level of love that he has for you, you come to realize that your life and this world is better when he is your God, not when you try to be your own God. And when you understand that, and when you really believe that and you let that sink in, it is so easy to let go of this infectious, deluded desire of wanting to be God because you know the true God would treat you so much better than you could ever treat yourself and that you could treat others so much better if he was your God than if you were God. Do you see, brothers and sisters, that it's only through the love of God in the gospel through Jesus that you're able to actually work in a way that actually is good for this world. We are living in a world where people are working to where they're trying to establish their name, to where they're trying to be dominant, to where they're trying to rule over all. And let me ask you, do you really think that kind of work is going to be good for this world? 
You know, politics right now is so crazy because there's such a fury of this idea that if we give someone certain power, certain title over us, they don't have their best interest at heart. All they care about is themselves. That kind of fear doesn't exist when we have our faith in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, thereby freeing us to actually work in a manner that God intended us to work with. Work with the attitude that you are to love others as you love yourself. Because someone who is greater than you loved you in such a way to where he was willing to be beneath you and suffer for you and be humiliated you so that you could be exalted. Here's my question to you as I end this message, NCF. Why do you work? Why do you work as hard as you do? Why do you study as hard as you do? Why do you get so consumed with the work that you do? Is it because you care about your name? Is it because you care about how you're being perceived? Is it because you care about the title that you have and the prestige that you acquire for yourself? Is it because you're trying to establish your name as if you were a king? trying to establish his kingdom? Or are you working because the God who works, worked for you, even at great cost, so that you could be exalted? If you have that second option, you will be a profound worker for his kingdom and you will be a profound source of blessing in this world. What is your choice going to be? Are you going to be a worker that blesses this world or are you going to be a worker that curses this world even more. The choice is yours. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we come together and as we ponder the meaning of this passage and of what other parts of Scripture teaches us about work, Father, give us teachable hearts. Help us to receive the truth that you want us to receive in regards to our calling of work. Father, there are so many great professionals in here, people who are so well-established, so competent, so well on their way towards climbing the corporate ladder, climbing the ladder of profession, climbing the ladder of prestige. But Father, I ask for their sake and for the sake of this world, would you guard their hearts from falling into the demonic lie that work is the means to which we make ourselves great. Father, instead, help us to look to the one whose work makes us great, the work of Jesus, so that as we work in this world, People will not see us as trying to dominate them, trying to best them, trying to rule over them. But instead, give us the heart of Jesus as he worked for us. Give us the heart of a servant. Give us the heart of wanting to bless others around us. Help us to live out that call so that this city could be positively impacted by your people seeking to be salt and light. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're not going to give the Lord his tithe and our offering. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give, but to our members, let's give to God his tithes and our offerings.